Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have David Wilson with us. And David is the Deputy Chief Innovation Officer at Bechtel Corporation. And as many of you probably know, Bechtel is gigantic. They're a global engineering, construction, and project management company with about $37 billion in, in annual revenue and uh, nearly 60,000 employees. And they build some of the largest energy and infrastructure projects in the world, including the famous Channel connecting France and England. So David has been with Bechtel since about 2001, and he's served in a number of roles, which we can hear about. And so now David is helping breathe innovation into Bechtel. And so that doesn't sound too easy at such a large, established engineering firm. So I'm curious how he's doing it. I'm also curious to hear, hear what David is interested in now, as far as technology and innovation, and to hear more about his background. So David, thanks for coming on the show. No, it's great, Dave. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate the chance to share and have a discussion. I think the fact that the innovation community continues to share and to grow, you know, a lot to learn from you know, participating as well as being exposed to what other folks are doing. So great opportunity to share, and I appreciate you giving me the time. Definitely. Well, and we, pre- we definitely appreciate it. And before we dive in what you're doing now, can you give us a little background and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, so it's a winding road. So I'm a mechanical engineer by degree, started out at uh, University of Utah, graduated in mechanical engineering, had my heart set on the automotive industry. And just before I graduated, the automotive industry took a pretty significant downturn. And so I actually ended up, of all places, at a construction company that I hadn't heard of when I was in school. So if you'd asked me who Bechtel is when I was in in college, I couldn't. I couldn't have told it. I didn't know, and uh, it just happened to be at the career fair, and, and things kind of worked out. And uh, had a chance to go work on one of the projects that we were working on. And actually, still continue to work on a Washington State a WTP project. Um, so it's. Uh, I couldn't have predicted it. Wouldn't have. Uh, wouldn't have um, found me telling you that I thought I'd end up here. You know, 15, 16 years ago, but I've enjoyed every minute of it, and it's a constant uh, learning experience and, and constant opportunities for something different. And what was that uh, first project you worked on out in Washington, and what did you do? So I was I started out in mechanical design for the waste treatment project and spent a couple of years doing line sizing, pump sizing, tank size calculations just straight out of college. So the typical thing to do as an engineer you get parked in a cubicle and you start doing calculations. <laughs> gotcha. And uh, so, can, so you understood how much uh, um, sewage and stuff was that Washington was it? Where was it in Washington that this plant was going? So, so the plant, the plant is it's out. It's called the Hanford. We were actually the project office was in the Tri Cities, which, depending on if folks are familiar with Washington State, it's it's. You know, between roughly Seattle, Spokane, and Portland, it's kind of right there on the okay. edge of Washington and uh, in Oregon. So I, I've always been curious. We don't have to dwell on this the whole time, but when uh, we're making those calculations, are you trying to predict the increase in sewage as well, so that you you know install the proper pumps and build a handle future growth? Well, so we were really more geared towards doing process sizing. So we we knew what we were trying to do from a process perspective and what the flow had to be. And 
okay. um, what the, the chemical processes were. So we were in our group, mechanical systems, we were doing more of the sizing for a, a process that had already been defined um, and taking into account what, uh, you know, what volume we were trying to treat or what, you know, what conditions we were trying to work around. So we had a lot of that. It wasn't really in the group I was in, we weren't necessarily factoring um, growth, but there were, well, there was a process group that worked on process details and we worked on the mechanical systems and, and then I actually transitioned into control systems, which just took that and expanded it. So we worked on um, control system design, system design around, um, you know, instrumentation and valves and, and, and the like. Interesting. And what was one of your, uh, I know you played a number of roles at Bechtel. What was one of your more, most interesting roles? Maybe that, maybe it was that one or be, before your current role, at least what was, uh, What's that? Yeah. you know, I think, so I went from that into six Sigma and we, we've got a pretty healthy six Sigma program in Bechtel and now lean six Sigma. We do some innovation things within the six Sigma program. So actually the chance to, you know, my career has really been, I went from micro scope to kind of process overarching scope to more of a, a holistic project scope. So it's gradually grown in terms of how does, how does all the process activity interact. And so Six Sigma is really interesting from uh, looking at the whole process and looking at how do we improve things across disciplines and across functions. Um, how do we look at the right metrics? Not all the metrics don't create data just to create data, but look at the right metrics and, and drive improvements. So that was a great chance to get process exposure, process thinking, um, ideation thinking, and really the collaborative and, and teaming aspect of working with people and presenting and communicating all really happened as a part of that role. I, you know, the job was strictly speaking process improvement, but I got so much out of it that uh, really an invaluable experience in my mind. Hmm. And yeah, and can you maybe expand that a little more? I, I'm curious, you know, if you have an example of how your thinking changed, and if you had like a certain project where it changed, or um, that might be hard to think of. Your... No, actually, actually, there was one of my. So it was a black belt, and then I became a master black belt, wow. and it's a part of becoming a, ma a master black belt. Yeah, it, it's not. Uh, I, I got the shirt that says I got a master black belt. I'm crazy. It's not. It's not the cool black belt, right? So yeah, it's not the right. one that you can't beat up. Either. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I can definitely put you to sleep, but I can't beat yeah, you up, exactly. right? So, <laughs> death by boredom. Um, no, all right. <laughs> no, that, that, that is exactly right. So I, I still to this day when folks ask, "What do you do?" I say, "I'm an engineer," because it's too hard to explain everything else. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so the, I think the most interesting was when I was a master block, but we had a project that we had, we had been challenged with for years and doing the same approach to process improvement wasn't going to work. So we went and got, got smarter about innovation and innovative design. And that really taught me a lot about um, some simple frameworks and common terms. You need to go back to uh, Clayton Christensen and the job to be done concept. And we started looking at, instead of trying to solve something, with our known solution and our known process, let's step back and apply that job to be done philosophy and look at what are we, what, what are we really trying to do from a solution neutral perspective and how do we take that and innovate and design something new to solve that job to be done? That really started to shape a lot of my, my thinking in that project. And it was specifically around vendor information, which we are challenging because we do design work, we do some contract work and, and trying to incorporate information from others is a challenge. Interesting. And 
and so and, and that was probably across disciplines like in different the divisions that you were pulling all that vendor information yeah absolutely it was across our different businesses so having to work with you know we're a global or a global company with multiple business lines having to work with multiple businesses and multiple functions yeah absolutely gotcha okay well let's talk a little bit more about what you're doing now but first uh i gave a super brief intro on bechtel do, do you mind giving a maybe expanding on that a little bit more uh, give a your 30 second overview yeah yeah you guys do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you actually nailed it pretty well. So, (laughs) large company, lots of projects. We've done more than twenty-five thousand projects in one hundred and sixty countries, and we've got a hundred and fifteen plus year uh, history. I think we're now at one hundred and eighteen, I think ish, um, since since eighteen ninety-eight. So, we've been around for a long, long time. Different business units. So we do oil and gas. We do nuclear safety and environmental. So a lot of work with the government, mining and metals, and then infrastructure where uh, we do lots of, of roads, rail, um, thermal power plants. So any kind of if you if you think of a heavy industrial project or a mega project, it's probably a Bechtel project or one we would, we would be interested in, one we have done, or uh, one we would be you know well suited for. So that's kind of a, a high level view of the company. You know, you know, really, you know, really broad expertise and, uh, you know, global reach with, with a long history and private company, right? So I don't know if a lot of people know that. That's why we're not, you don't typically hear about us as much because we are a private company, family owned and led for the majority of that history. And we have our new CEO in September, uh, Brendan Bechtel, who, you know, the great, great grandson of the, of one of the, the founders. So, a long history of, of a family owned and, and operated company and, and a lot of culture and history goes with that. Yeah. That's quite a, quite a nice story. And, and I'm curious, um, is how, how Bechtel is involved in these projects. Are you guys generally essentially the general contractor and would you sub out certain pieces or do you take over a lot of the, um, subcontracting work or how's that work? So it's a mix. We, we typically prefer to do, um, self-perform uh, engineering procurement and construction, so the whole, the whole scope. But we do do a lot of, of project management, a lot of construction management scope. Uh, depends on the country, depends on the customer, depends on the project. It, it's a, var- a variation. We do some JV work, so we will partner with companies to, to either run the PMCM aspect of the project or to, to go and self-perform and execute the project. So mixture, you know, mixture in contracts from lump sum to cost rate. Um, variety of customers from government to, to private uh, public partnerships. So it, it's it's a pretty good variety, and it, um, it really is. You know, one of the things I found to be really true is you can work with one company and feel like you're you have the opportunity to work for many companies and change different views and, and perspectives mm-hmm. throughout a career, which is which is nice. So you get the the best of staying with a company, and you get the benefit of having lots of different opportunities. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, you guys are sixty thousand employees. You guys are like a small city. <laughs> so you can jump around. Yeah. Um. So, can you give us uh, an example of one project? You know, I mes- mentioned the channel, but maybe one existing project that you guys are working on, and any stats you have, just to give people a feel for, you know, the size of projects you work on. Can you think? Yeah, of I, uh, I. I so the one I came off of before this role, I'll just get that's the one I'm closest to. Uh, I was currently working on an AT&T project for Bechtel where we were working on the Y 
uh, the wireless deployment. So working on doing LTE antenna installations for the AT&T um, customer, and that was across the nation. So many, many different locations. We had, I think at the most, we had, uh, we, and we worked for them for, we, we currently are still working on that project uh, for 15 plus years in, in multiple markets. So we would go out and you know, hang antennas and, and run the power and, and work on helping deploy their network. And so that was one that had some complexity around logistics and geography and having a distributed workforce where everybody's not within a fence and that created some challenges. And then we have other projects that are mega um, oil and gas projects that have just um, just massive quantities of piping and steel. There's a lot of work in Houston in that space. Uh, we've got a project that, that is going to go on in Edmonton for uh, a rail project and we're going to work out in the Middle East for uh, Riyadh Metro and then a Muscat airport and um, it just a, a real, a really strong variety of projects um, in the portfolio. You know, we've got thermal uh, combined cycle power plants. We're working on a couple of those in uh, Maryland and Virginia and kind of the surrounding area um, for, again, for different customers, different sizes and different scales. So we do have projects that, um, you know, are in the, the 500 million range and then projects that are in the, in the billion dollar range in terms of um, total revenue. So it, it just is a mixed, a mixed variety of size and scale. We'll have jobs that have, you know, a couple hundred people and we'll have projects that have, you know, 7,000 people. Wow. That's crazy. And, uh, well, and the project, and the one, one reason why people don't know you as much is that all the projects you work on and all the things that we don't really think about when you're walking around, you know, the sewer plants, the, the cells, the cell system, and like, you know, all these oil and gas pro- infrastructure projects. It's just, uh, you know, you're not building the, the fancy new office building downtown with your name plastered all over the place. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. You don't see our name posted on a lot of the, the exteriors of the project, right? We do it for big customers. Our customers know us, but the public doesn't always, you know, recognize that that's, you know, that was a Bechtel project. Yeah. It's kind of nice to stay a little quiet, but so anyways, let's, let's talk about your current role. Can you, can you kind of tell us about your current role and kind of your priorities and focus areas? Yeah. So it's been interesting because it's really was the first, you know, it, nobody was in the role before I was. So really? it, it's kind of been a, a yeah, it, so it was one we just defined a year ago. Um, we defined both our innovation uh, chief innovation officer and myself as the deputy chief innovation officer you know, got kicked off a little more than a year ago. So it's, it's been new, new, new uh, uncharted waters uh, to, to shape a program uh, around you know, driving internal innovation. Really, actually, I'd say formalizing, right? We, we've got a history of um, a strong history of problem solving on projects. And so, you know, one of the things we're trying to do is recognize that a lot of what we've done has been innovative. And we're trying to make sure folks understand that. But then Understanding it's not enough. How do we push beyond it and even even be more disruptive or innovative and take um, take ideas further than we may have historically and really press forward in terms of how we deliver? Hmm. And and how do you yeah how are you attempting to formalize innovation? Like I, like you brought up a good point of you you've always been innovative, innovative right? You probably won't be in business if you weren't if you weren't innovative, but you know, how do you share the innovation across the other projects or yeah, what's kind of a, your focus or are you, are you more about the internal innovation or working with outside parties? There's a lot of questions. Yeah, there, sure. 
There was another quite yeah, Chris, several questions there. So I'll tackle I'll go I'll go backwards. Yeah. So I'll start from the last to go forward. So we, we do we're looking at uh driving internal innovation or, or entrepreneurials, right? That's only a piece of it. So we're trying to foster that internal culture, but also I've got somebody on the team that is working on external, you know, how do we find the startup or the academic, you know, student group or the professor or the, you know, the the partner organization that is really working on some very um, very interesting technology or processes or organizational innovation that we really should be aware of and figure out how to implement and bring into the organization. So we're trying to drive it internally, but also bring it in externally, knowing that we don't have all the answers. And so we know what, we, what problems we want to solve, but how do we go find out who's got the best solution that we can either help, you know, just go and implement or help co-develop um, and take a role as a, as a VC, if, if it makes sense. Um, so we're not limited internally. That's probably where most of our time is spent, but we're, we're also mindful of what's happened externally and trying to draw whatever we can in that uh, can help us execute. And, and so that's that, that, oh, that, yeah, that piece of it. So go, okay. no, go ahead. Well, I, I was curious, how, how do you find, or how do you, uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of my, that's part of the other question is how, for the internal innovation, how do you encourage that and recognize it and give people, you know, flexibility to, maybe try things. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things the company did, and it, you know, I think it's been very key. So that actually the company set aside a future fund, a $60 million fund over a three year period hmm. to go and invest in internal ideas. And really what it works out to, to being is that I think folks have always had good ideas. Implementing on projects at times is a challenge because a project has profit loss responsibilities. So doing something new or bringing in something untested, it creates some risk and it creates some challenges. So the Future Fund really allows us to take an idea that's just a concept and we go through some phases. So and none of this is new. I'm sure folks are doing this. But how do you take that concept and incrementally fund it to see what sticks, what works, how do you get it to where you can prototype it? And then if the prototype works and it shows some benefit, how do you scale that and go into a project pilot? And then if that makes sense, that demonstrates results and return and value, how do you then institutionalize that across the organization? So we'll go through that process and you get, we have this fund that allows people to have the hours and dollars and, you know, support externally to go and take a concept they might have and advance it through that life cycle so they can deliver a mature innovation to the organization. So we really reach out to the organization, creating awareness about what we're doing and trying to drive the idea flow and the ideation into that concept development process. Interesting. And I, mean, I think you're right. Well, I know you're right. The other corporations are doing kind of something similar, but you guys are quite committed. I mean, that's a large amount of money <laughs> over a three-year I haven't heard that big a sum over a three-year period for it. Just internal um, kind of innovation. That's interesting. And, and do you have an example of a, of a, well, first I was going to ask uh, with your employees, you know, part of that fund, do you, do you have like an incentive plan to say, Hey, if you come up with something and it works out and makes us a lot of money or saves us money, you know, you, you get a bonus or do you have something like that in place? Yeah. So that, that question actually comes up uh, quite a bit. And what we, what we've tried to do is not, uh, not necessarily monetize ideas for folks. So within any, any company, right? If you contribute and you um, participate and help advance the company, there you know there's normal compensation and bonuses and, and rewards and recognition programs in place. And so 
what we're trying to do is leverage those as they make sense. And so, you know, if you're stepping up and you're advancing the company, you'll get recognized as a part of that process. What we tried not to do is say, you know, if you submit an idea, we're going to make it transactional. So if you give us an idea that works, we're going to give you, you know, whatever the dollar amount is. So we're, we're trying to retain, um, you know, the more of the social dynamic of ideation, innovation, and not monetize it because of some of the potential um negative repercussions of, of going into a transactional environment where, where we say, you know, you know, we're going to monetize your idea and your engagement. Well, you know, the, that creates a lot of challenges. Well, did I monetize it enough to encourage you to participate or are you participating for the wrong reasons and you're just kind of taking advantage of the trend? So we've tried not to make that direct connection, but people are, you know, the ones that contribute and engage. And that definitely is a factor when you look at performance reviews and compensation planning. We just haven't made it. A, a true transactional, um, you know, you submit and we give you in return kind of a thing. Um, but we've seen, and we've seen really good engagement just by, just by saying, we know you got to get good ideas. We know you're frustrated. What we will do is give you the money and resources to take your idea and, and mature it and give you the exposure and opportunity to, to actually, um, you know, solve something and present. So it really gets back to some drive concepts, right? So the autonomy, the purpose and the mastery. We're trying to tap into those aspects of, of motivating and, uh, you know, encouraging our, our, our entire team to, to engage. No, I think that's smart. And do you have an example of a, a project that started out as an idea and has now turned into more of a, I know you just started this recently, but um, do you have an example of a project that's well on its way? Yeah, I'm trying to think through it. Yeah, I, I'll use I'll use one that is like we have. There's a lot, and there's some I, I you know I can't <laughs> yes, share some yes. right. Um, but I, I will share I will share a couple that, that I think or at least one that is is a really okay. good example of, of somebody, and it it's 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 going to sound obvious, and it doesn't you know it's it's like anything with any innovation. A lot of times you hear you go, well, that's that's obvious. That's pretty much common sense. Well. No, it wasn't, and so it took some some engagement, some participation to get it to tease out. But right now, we're working with somebody had an idea about using virtual reality or an HTC Vive, and said, "Hey, what if we could do this? And how? What if we put people in it for training?" That's not a new idea, right? But we hadn't done anything with it, so we said, "Yeah, that sounds promising. Let's go see what it looks like." So here's some hours to go investigate, figure out what we can do. So. The person went out, they, you know, we got a HTC Vive, we got a, a laptop that could run it. Um, they did some investigation. We actually discovered that one of our job sites for safety training had created a physical mock-up of several different scenarios. They'd gone into a facility and they'd built up different um, environments or scenarios to do safety training, right? And um, that's great. That works well for that yeah. project, but it, it doesn't, it, you can't take it anywhere else, right? It's really hard to take that right. and, and expose others to it. But what we found, the, the person who had the VR idea said, you know, I've found through my investigation and kind of getting more familiar with this idea, there's this company that can come and laser scan and can map and model that physical environment, put it to VR. So now what we have is we have that same physical environment we we're using for safety training. We've put it into a virtual reality train so that anybody that has the vibe and the setup, which isn't isn't terribly expensive, can hop into it and can go through and do safety training with lockout and tag out, can do, you know, basic fall protection and, and you know checking to make sure they understand what it looks like to assess scaffolding. So 
a lot of the stuff that you would have had to done physically, you can pop in and get the experience in virtual reality. And we think that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how do you deliver content and training that's experience-based instead of um, a narrative-based training, which, you know, is less effective. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been, I've been interested personally in VR and training and, but I, I'm curious, you know, have you found the experience? Cause you have like a perfect example where you have the kind of the physical um, compared to the virtuality. Like, have you, um, have people done, I guess I didn't say have people done both. I'm curious to see how good the VR is compared to like the actual um, environment and if people yeah, learn it, as much. Yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, everybody that everybody, so we all, you know, almost without failure, people say, hey, that's going to be, you know, what if that's kind of, that's kind of gimmicky or flashy. <laughs> yeah. That's not, I mean, so everybody walks up with some skepticism, right? But every time without failure, we get somebody in it and they do it. They're like, wow. Um, you know, I can see how this can really change things from a training perspective. And that's just the tip of it, right? So the next, and then you start looking at, well, how do you do collaboration? How do you do site walkdowns? How do you do constructability? So it starts to, you know, you start pulling the thread and there's lots of potential for creating that virtual real experience um, that is much lower cost than doing a physical mock-up or doing a physical um, prototype to create the experience. And so everybody's walked away and so that's great. And they, you know, they get the concepts, they, they understand what a confined space, you know, looks like and feels like without having ever actually having gone into a confined space. So you're, you're able to do quite a bit where you can, through virtual reality, expose somebody to a safety scenario that you'd never want to expose them to in a physical environment, right? You can't just, you wouldn't want to put them in a situation where they're, you know, not tied off on a, on a beam or they're, you know, they're, they're exposed to confined space without having been trained. So this allows you to do that, create that experience without actually putting, putting them in harm's way. And, and can you share what the training is? It's fine if you can't for confidentiality reasons, but. Well, it's a lot of just what I talked about. So it's getting familiar with uh, scaffolding assessments, understanding what, what you need to look for as you walk up to scaffolding okay. and make sure it's, 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 it's green carded so that you can access it. You're making sure folks understand where they need to be positioned. If there's, uh, you know, welding operations or grinding operations, if you're in a place where you need ventilation, where you put the ventilation so that you, you make sure that you're getting you know, adequate ventilation through the space that you're in, you know, is there trash? What does it mean that, you know, am I, are you able to see the, the trash or the space and, and, and uh, identify hazards? So it's a lot of just hazard recognition training within different, within different environments. Gotcha. Okay. And so, and so that's a really good example of a project. So I'm curious um, how, the kind of your process, like how do you identify that was a good idea? And then how do you allocate, decide how, how do you decide how to allocate resources and how much, how does that process look? Yeah. So it's, we tried to minimize the bureaucracy. And so anybody in the company can send in an idea and it doesn't have to be approved by their supervisor. It doesn't have to be uh, approved by their functional manager. They can send it in and it comes to myself and a small team. And we just really look for a couple of things. Is it, is it disruptive? Does it, do we think it's got an 18 month or give or take time to get, you know, matured? Is it affect multiple business lines? And is it something that's, you know, new that we're not already working with? And we take that initial glance and say, okay, it looks pretty good. It passes those first hurdles. And then we say, okay, go develop more of a, 
a pitch or a uh, business case. And when I say business case, I'm not meaning a business case with ROI, but just you know, let's go flesh it out a little bit more, figure out who's in the space, who do we need, what are we going to do to go advance it. Uh, so we release funding to, to take that initial concept that doesn't have to be very well baked and develop it. So a few hours to go put some more you know, structure around it. And then if that comes back and that looks promising and you know, we think that there's something we can go partner with or somebody we can go partner with or a technology we can potentially go implement, we go figure out, okay, how much is that going to cost in terms of hours and dollars for services? And so, yeah, that looks promising. Let's go, let's go fund it to prototype. And then as that comes back, we start to get more people involved with its functions or projects and, and then look at, okay, the next phase, we think it's going to cost, you know, X dollars and we're going to go, um, you know, we'll go fund that. And I think the thing to answer your question we look at, so we look both at those criteria to the fund and to implement, but we're also looking at, you know, there's three kind of three horizons of innovation. And this isn't really new. This is, I think this is out there in, in the space. You know, we're looking at, you know, there's incremental innovation, which probably fits more into our normal process improvement. There's the sideways or you know, mimicry where we're looking outside to bring in to implement. And there's disruptive. And so we do get a sense, much like me, um, VCs do, is this idea a, a decacorn? Is this an idea a one or two times impact idea? And we will pick and choose. We tell folks not every idea is equal. But we find those ideas that we want to accelerate and amplify with the limited resources we have within my team. And we really try to go press on those to move faster. And then we let other ideas kind of mature more naturally. And and how do you – okay, yeah, that was kind of my next question, and I think you kind of answered it. But, um, yeah, I, I was curious about do you go after um, certain focus areas saying, hey, th- this year we really need to innovate, you know, around – and I won't be able to think of an example. But uh, – or do you just kind of have ideas naturally arise um, and then, you know, pick, them, pick, them, pick the best ones, the ones that come to the top, those are the ones that you work on? So we do have we you know the first phase of this last year we've kind of left it open. Yeah. yeah. Uh, going into going, going into next year we've started to structure a little bit more. And so we, we know we want to go focus on you know these areas because we think you're going to have a big impact, um, and we're going to prioritize ideas that come in in these spaces. So you know augmented reality, virtual reality, big data. So none of that none of that I think is is terribly different. We've got a few others, but. Those are a couple of the areas that I don't think are terribly different than a lot of folks in industry. Um, so we're trying to look at how do we advance ideas and, and advance our experience understanding in those spaces and weave it into our construction execution. Gotcha. That makes sense. And how do you guys, uh, I think you might, you said you have somebody who kind of looks for ideas and startups outside of Bechtel. Is, is there somebody designated to do that? And, um, yeah, how do how do they how do you find kind of the innovation around the, the world? We we do have a person, and you know he helps us run some stuff. He helps us run things to ground, but really we've said to the organization, you know, everybody be looking. You know, don't look just internally. Look outside, and if you find something that's interesting, or you you know of you know somebody that's doing some you know very in, innovative activity or studies. You let us know and we'll figure out how to connect the dots and either you know, go talk to that company or that uh, professor, you know, learn some more and figure out how do we get them connected with the right technical group or community within our company to then go figure out how do we stay engaged. So 
you know, there's a lot of, and I, you know, we've used the term, I've heard the term used internally. You know, there's a lot of hunter, hunters and gatherers that are out there looking. And then I've got one person that kind of helps corral, you know, what's the nature of the engagement once we go and we've identified an external, an external point of contact. And with your experience with the innovation at Bechtel, you know, is there kind of how, how do you want to, where do you want to take it? Or is there something that you think Bechtel could be doing better? I guess you'd maybe have already implemented it, but, uh, you know, where, where do you kind of want to take the, the innovation side of things at Bechtel? So we're trying to really drive, so we are ultimately, you know, the ultimate criteria is how is it helping us? execute better, faster, leaner, you know, more yeah. higher quality and safer. Right? So that's kind of the lens we look at. So we want to drive a future state that continually progresses that and look at ideas that help us do that. So that's a big criteria. So that's one aspect. So we're not just looking at cool things for the sake of, of you know, the sake of the fact that it's cool and it's interesting. We're trying to drive that, those aspects and that, that, that uh, nature of competitiveness at the same time, we're also trying to develop more more of an entrepreneurial culture and, and continue to foster and encourage the internal uh, culture of innovation. So it's both a behavior and a people at the end of the day that, that drives and changes and moves forward, but it's also how we're moving the business and, and becoming more competitive and, and focusing on those better, faster, leaner, higher quality and safer you know, metrics. And, and how do you guys know... I mean, it sounds like you're doing some interesting things, but how do you guys know that the innovation department's doing a good job? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's probably more gray area as far as uh, I, criteria to meet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a fantastic question. I get that. I get that quite a bit. So we try to, we're trying to do a couple of things. We're trying to, the first year we focused on, on quantity of ideas just to get the engagement and the flow of ideas up. You know, really get awareness out there, you know, telling folks that it's about the volume of engagement to get the great ideas. And so that was really our message in, in the first year. And we start to now look at, and I think that the, some of the concepts, if you look at the, the textbooks like Lean Startup and some other things, really you start to look at, are we now, what's the learning quotient? What's the learning metric? Are we innovating and are we learning and are we actually institutionalizing and implementing? So we start to look at, okay, we did pretty well on awareness. Now, are we actually advancing ideas? And what's the speed of, of maturation for a concept or an idea through the life cycle? And how are we tracking that? How are, how are we moving those big ideas quickly through that life cycle? So that's one metric around the um, advancement of ideas. And then we look at the adoption. Are, how are they being adopted and implemented? And so there's a metric around the adoption. And if we've done our job within the innovation space, you know, we've encouraged awareness. And we've picked a few, we've advanced those few or encouraged the advancements of those few ideas to move through the process with a, with a healthy flow. And if we've picked the right ones, adoption should be high. And so um, we kind of look at that whole life cycle of metrics around quantity, speed, and adoption to assess, you know, how well are we doing? Oh, that's good. No, that makes sense. And right, those, um, I suppose those metrics, as you said, will change in 10 years than they will now, but... That makes sense, uh, and and I was curious, you know, what you would have done. Is would you have done anything differently? I guess starting up the innovation department, um, you know, what mistakes did you make that you or things you would have done differently looking back? 
Oh yeah, we we've we've made a lot of. I mean, we, there's been a lot of learning in the process, <laughs> yeah, right? Right. right. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, we've recognized a few things, right? We, uh, awareness is, is a big deal. Okay. And just something as simple as awareness of what we're already doing. And I think this is, you know, it, I think it, it's pretty common that, you know, you ask for an idea, you need to give people feedback for them to stay engaged. And you know, that's not, so we, we kind of set up a process to do that. What, what we probably missed in the first pass of that was making sure folks had ready access to everything that's already happening within the company so that they didn't submit the exact same idea or they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't retread something that we've already evaluated or looked at. And this isn't just within the innovation program, but just within the corporate landscape. Uh, and what that does, because we kind of miss that, is folks send in ideas and we say, well, we're already doing that. And that, it kind of, it's a bit of a discouraging factor for them because, you know, they feel like they, well, that was my great idea. And I, you know, now I've engaged and you said you didn't want it. So they shut down a little bit. So, you know, what I wish we could have done better is, you know, provide a, a provide that initial landscape perspective for folks to, to really absorb and digest before they submitted an idea. So they didn't get, uh, they didn't get to, you know, they didn't get uh, deflated because we said, Hey, we're already doing that. Uh, you know, thanks for sending it in. Right. So that's one of the things that I would have done differently and um, would have probably adjusted and, you know, the other thing that we're working through and we're, we're adopting is the, the idea, you know, and the tools to crowdsource. So at first we just had what we'll call a digital suggestion box, which is great. It works fine, but you, you totally miss the opportunity for ideas to collide mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and for, for, right. So you miss the chance for any idea shaping to happen within that community or within a social dynamic. We, we, and we didn't start off with that. And I wish we had waited a little bit longer to pick the right platform to deploy a crowdsourcing module earlier. Now we have one now, so we're doing it now, but I wish we could have done that earlier so folks could have had that environment to collaborate on the first round of ideas. And so there's a couple of things if you ask me, I'd, I'd like to do that. Uh, I would have done that differently. Yeah, the crowdsourcing is interesting. You know, I've interviewed a, a number of innovation folks and I don't think I've quite and, – and, don't think I remember anybody talking about the crowdsourcing, but it makes a, a ton of sense, right? Because you have one idea, which might not be great, but it might need a little tweaking to work at another area that they're not even in. And yeah, that's interesting. Huh, that's a good one. Yeah, and it and it's all based on you know the the author. I can look it up. But the wisdom of crowds, you know, yeah, yeah. gets into the you know gets into the you get the best when you can tap into a diverse group of people and. Get their get their ideas and you know their suggestions to collide and, and aggregate it up. So I think we've harnessed that now, but I would have done that sooner if I if I had uh, had the chance. Makes sense. And so we're almost out of time here, unfortunately. But I got uh, one, maybe two questions. But I'm I'm curious how you know, as when you're in innovation, you have to cover a lot of different areas. You know, how do you keep learning? and kind of stay on top of the cutting edge across different disciplines. Do you, you know, what do you read or who do you talk to? Yeah, I, I've started reading anything I can get my hands on. And then, you know, talking to as many folks that have done this as possible that have learned through this and that have you know, gone through the, you know, gone through some of the early phase learning. So we've got folks that are on the, you know, on the, the Bechtel board of directors that have worked for other companies that have done some things, not, not directly similar, but, but, you know, similar enough that 
you're going and talking to them, talking to the stakeholders, talking to you know folks that have, have run programs or set up programs, and you know trying to you know leverage anything I can find so we're not recreating something or relearning something that somebody else has already done. So you know staying connected to podcasts like this and you know, reading anything I can find, whether it's in, you know, Wired Magazine or, you know, Better Homes and Garden, right? So it, it doesn't matter, right? There, there's all sorts <laughs> right. of, that, maybe that's not the best example, but, but you kind of get the point. You know, it, yep. There, yep. There is so much, so much out there and, and just, you know, getting simple, you know, I find I use some things on my phone just to you know, use the flipboard to go through articles and try to figure out things that, that stick and, you know, what I can use and what I can reference and, you know, things that, summarize books so I can digest it pretty quickly, uh, like Blinkist, and, and doing some of those things to get exposed to as much, figure out what has the, the most depth, and then kind of go into that in more detail to figure out what we can learn from an instrument. Hmm, interesting. And the, is there any any one source where like, wow, this has been really amazing? It sounds like you t- happened a lot, so maybe there isn't just one. You know, and it's probably, you know, folks will, it, it's probably, you know, Harvard, it comes out with consistently great material and things. They just did an yeah. uh, interesting series on Rebel Talent where they released articles on a, on a, I think it was almost a daily or at least a multiple times on a week basis that was a really good structure for delivering ideas and thinking. It wasn't, that wasn't just an innovation, but that was, that was both, you know, innovation and culture and people. So Harvard HBR consistently has great content. You know, I look at things from Wired and Inc. and Fast Company, and then just general stuff through Flipboard on articles about innovation. And you know, seeing what GE is doing, what IBM's talking about, and you know, what are these major companies that have gone through these transitions? You know, what have they done? How are they doing things differently? How are they incubating? What's their approach? And just you know, soaking as much up as as we can. And um, you know, figuring out what, what works and what doesn't, and, you know, how do we shape our own program? I think it's one of the things that I had to like core takeaway is, you know, each company has its own DNA and its own culture. So it has to develop its own, its own program and no two program, programs are going to look the same. And so we're trying to figure out what ours looks like. And we're, I think we're getting, we're getting better and we're learning more and we're, we're maturing. So. Interesting. All right. Well, that, I think that's a good way to end the podcast and uh, David definitely appreciate your time and thoughts and the, uh... You have a quite an interesting role there at Bechtel, so you, a lot of your days must be uh, quite interesting. Never the same. <laughs> nice, yes, uh, but yeah, definitely appreciate it. And then, as always, I appreciate everyone for listening to another episode of Flower Labs, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, look forward to seeing you guys on the next one. Uh, thanks, David. Thank definitely you, Dave. Appreciate it. it. All right, bye, everyone. <laughs>